everyone. Welcome to episode four of Make Mental Matter. My name is Tori, and some of the things we are discussing today may be tough for some listeners, so listener discretion is advised. All right, so let's get started. I mentioned to our guest about the podcast last week, and we kind of hit it off right away discussing the importance of mental health. Just uh, from a few patients we had early on. Uh, so, Dr. Black, why don't you introduce yourself for everyone listening? So, I'm Stephen Black. I am a pediatrician um, working in Pennsylvania. I've been practicing pediatrics in the outpatient setting for the past four years, and I've been a board-certified pediatrician for seven years. I work in a rural environment. The only environments I've really worked in have been fairly rural settings. So before I was here, I was training in Danville, Pennsylvania, which is a fairly rural town along the Susquehanna River, and it's only really big employer is the hospital system there. And can you tell the listeners why you agreed to have this interview with me? Basically, I feel like mental health is a issue issue. It is an aspect of medicine that often goes under-recognized and under-emphasized in terms of how it actually affects health care on the whole, how it affects cost of care, how it affects development, and how it affects society, just because it, it doesn't just affect the person it affects, it affects everyone around them. Um, I think that's extremely topical in pediatrics. Um, not only do we have our patients' health care to worry about, our patients' mental health to worry about, we have to worry about the parents' mental health, about family members' mental health. So it kind of tackles mental health in a uh, broader aspect than I think some areas of medicine do. And I think it's an important um, perspective to have when you look at mental health and just from being here, I've seen it firsthand, but can you take a listener through specifically what you can see from your standpoint? Like, take us through a timeline from baby to when you no longer see these kids anymore from a mental health standpoint. Even before day one, so during pregnancy, you know, I work inpatient in the hospital in a nursery as well, and so you have to be you know, concerned with whether or not parents have depression and whether or not they're medicated or if they have other conditions for which they take medications because those medications can affect the care of the baby right after delivery. Then you're worried about postpartum depression. And oftentimes in pediatrics, we are the first people to see the mothers after they've delivered the baby. So we are the people who are supposed to be screening for postpartum depression you know, throughout the first year of, of life for the child. So at every visit, we should be asking about postpartum depression using standardized screening assessments. Um, here in my office, we use the Edinburgh scale, which is just a nine or an 11 question scale about postpartum depression and how things have been affecting, you know, mom. And then if it's positive, it falls to us to make sure that mom's aware that there are resources or that she's at least getting assessed for the help she needs if she does test positive for postpartum depression. Do you find that 
that screening is accurate? The Edinburgh scale? I find it's a pretty good um, measure. I think that since it's self-report, you will often find that it under, um, under acknowledges mental health because, again, the, the reporter is the, the parent. So I feel like they'll often try to minimize what they're feeling, but I think that I will find that it's very rare that the Edinburgh scale is significantly elevated in a patient who is not struggling in some way, form, or manner. So I think it's good in so far as you can expect a self-report screen to be a good measurement. And then, you know, does it provide guidance of what to do afterwards? No, but it does kind of stratis- stratify parents into high, moderate, or mild risk for postpartum depression. So it doesn't actually diagnose anyone. It just says they're at risk for these because we're pediatricians. We can't actually diagnose mom with postpartum depression. We can say it seems like you have it and you need to receive treatment. And then also it can fall to us to help them find those resources. But on the whole, I find it's a pretty, a pretty good standardized assessment. It's been well studied and the questions have been, you know, validated over over various studies to be good questions for it it's just it's a self-report tool so so now in regards to kiddos what does your practice do to identify these mental health issues so here we generally don't start screening for depression until adolescence at our adolescent visits we will implement the uh, phq9 um questionnaire to assess for symptoms of depression and again that's a patient report so they self-report their symptoms and based on that you can say hey it seems like you have mild moderate severe or no depression at all and that's just in the realm of required screening for depression you know based on uh, center for medical assistance medical medicare and medicaid guidelines if we have concerns come up before those visits. We obviously implement screening questionnaires to kind of better suss out the symptoms and use our interview skills to determine whether we think these patients have, you know, anxiety, depression, attention deficit disorders, other things going on. But insofar as routine care is concerned, we only implement the screenings at adolescent visits across the board. Do you think the PHQ-9 is accurate? Like, what do you think about it? I don't think that does a huge service to these kids because pediatrics is generally, like, in my mind, the the front line of preventative health care. You are literally there at the front lines of health. These kids are building the habits they'll have for their lifetime, and there are tools out there that allow us to assess for likelihood of developing mental health issues later than later in life, but my office does not currently implement those um, previously. And you may or may not have heard of, of I'm, I'm not sure if we've talked about this previously, but um, Kaiser Permanente did some pretty landmark studies in the 80s through the 2000s. Um, there was a very big longitudinal study um, actually based out of a weight loss clinic, and I could do a whole ramble about the the adverse childhood experiences 
survey, but the study basically was finding that people were having worse outcomes later in life who had had high levels of adverse childhood experiences earlier in life. So you can sort of predict the likelihood of having mental health issues, um, even like medical issues like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, diabetes, based on the amount of adverse childhood experiences children were having. Adverse childhood experiences screening um, starts out as like a parent report of, of things a child has experienced in their life, and you can implement that at young ages. Usually, you know, really, the parent can answer those questions for the child at any point. And then after age 10, you can have the child answer the questions for themselves. Now, a degree of literacy is required for these children to answer the questions themselves, and I haven't found that they're really great at understanding the content of the questions until they're in their teens, because it asks about some pretty serious things, like have, you know, people in your household hit, slapped, or threatened each other? Have you been hit, slapped, or threatened by someone in your household? Have you had food insecurity? Have you had someone in your household be depressed or attempt suicide? Have you had someone in your household arrested or, or have substance abuse issues and stuff like that? So they're pretty heavy questions. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. And based on the number of positive hits you get on that, you have a higher likelihood of having uh, these worse outcomes later in life, including mental health issues. No, I've never heard of this study. I'll uh, make sure I put it in the description in case other people want to research about it. But uh, that's interesting that it's not widely implemented. It could be handled better, and I think in the long term, it would be good to implement these screenings as well but you got to also have the support in the area to be able to handle referrals and whatnot for these kids now i forgot to mention kaylee is again not present for this interview because she's just started school today and she's studying to become a teacher so a question on her behalf is how do you feel teachers can improve their tactics for children uh, regarding mental health, since, y you know, children spend most of their young lives in the classroom and majority of mental health struggles start in school. So it, what advice can you give for that? Really, and it's difficult because teachers are already one of the most overworked and underpaid professions in our country at this point in time because they're expected to be teachers or expected to be parents or expected to be tour guides or expected to be social workers are expected to be a lot of things that they are not paid to do and they're probably not even paid enough to be teachers and really other than keeping a lookout for kids who seem to be having problems and kind of probing a little bit into these children's lives and seeing what they're struggling with and getting them to the appropriate school psychologist or counselor to get help i don't think there's a whole lot more they can do some states um have been working on implementing trauma-informed care in schools so that teachers are trained better to recognize which kids are suffering from, you know, childhood trauma, um, food insecurity, stuff like that, and trying to help teachers, again, know what resources are available to help these kids out. But that's not standard across the country, and it is 
not the easiest thing to recognize because no kid's going to walk up to you and say, you know, I'm suffering childhood trauma. They might look completely normal and it could be that, you know, this completely normal kid has a dad who comes home drunk every night and beats the crap out of their mom. Or they could just be this kid who looks dingy and yucky and gross. And, you know, then you're like, oh, well, is this kid neglected? Or that could just be that this family doesn't have resources. So the other thing is they shouldn't be afraid to reach out to the and I know it works differently in different states, but reaching out to the Child Protective Services resources, because it doesn't necessarily have to be a, I think this child is in danger, you know, of being abused or is being sexually abused. It can be, I think this child's needs are not being met, and could you guys just please look into it? And then they can do further assessments and of course no parent likes having child protective services um, involved in their life but best case scenario if this family needs help then hopefully help them better raise their children help them better get the resources they need to not have these additional stressors that cause a whole lot of issues at home right that that's really good advice for teachers and children are so smart too children are sponges they see what we do they hear what we say and they model it they learn how to behave based on how things are modeled to them of course yeah parents play the biggest role in children's lives of course and yes you know if they're not mentally there how can they adequately care for their own child you can't talk about pediatric mental health without talking about adult mental health and without thinking about mental health care in this country as a whole because it's usually not a standalone thing it's usually something more there's usually something more to it yes i totally agree with you there um so from my research it said that suicide is currently the second leading cause of pediatric deaths yes. other than accidents. So yes. what do you think about that stat and how does that really play a role in your current practice? With suicide being such a high cause of death among pediatric patients, you have to take every single you know, mention of suicidal ideation as a potential threat to this child's life. So anytime you have someone on a PHQ-9 say that they are having thoughts of self-harm, it is your job 100% of the time to probe that deeper. You need to figure out, one, if this is an everyday thing, two, if they have a specific plan, three, if they have a specific plan, do they have the specific means, four, even if they don't have a plan or in form, do they have lethal means at home? Do they have access to medications they could use to harm themselves? Do they have access to firearms? Do they have access to, you know, sharp things like knives and razors that they could use to inflict self-injury? And then after that, and you also, this gets tricky because in Pennsylvania, you're considered an emancipated minor at 14. So your decisions in the realm of mental health are your own and you don't have to include parents in those conversations you may have to convince them to get their parents involved because your parents should 
be your support system, your closest support system and the people who can help you through this. Um, but also in the uh, realm of self-harm, if they do have a plan and everything, their confidentiality is secondary to their safety. So you can inform parents if there is a plan in place and if they have, you know, the notion that they want to act on something. Now, if they don't have active plans or anything like that, you can form a safety plan with the patient, which is just steps they can take to prevent themselves from harming themselves and who they can talk to if it seems like it's getting worse. Um, be that a therapist, their parents, you as a provider, your office. But if at any point they have active suicidal ideation, they have a plan and they would like to act on it, or they have shown you the that they have acted on something in the past, even if they have told you that they were not going to, you need to get them checked by crisis services for possible admission to a hospital setting for stabilization. Those services will vary county to county and location to location. Um, and just as a provider, it falls to you to know which jurisdiction your patients fall into and getting them networked with the right people. So sometimes that means sending them to the ER for an emergent evaluation. Some offices will have some, I guess, crisis response services will have offices where they'll do walk-ins who say, hey, and I, I will always call them and say, hey, so-and-so is a patient of mine. They have suicidal ideation. I am sending them with the mom to your office. If they do not arrive within X amount of time, you should call the police and have them do a safety check at this address because this kid is actively suicidal. And now what advice can you give like the general population about kids who make it known that they want to hurt themselves or they have a plan to take their life. Never, ever, 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 ever something to take lightly in, in pediatrics just because one, especially since the pandemic, the burden of mental health um, and, and depression and anxiety has been... I feel like disproportionately amplified among children who are very social creatures. And two, teenagers especially, don't have really functional frontal lobes and aren't thinking rationally about how they're going to do this. The thought process is, this sucks. I would like this to not suck anymore. I would like this to be over. There is one way I can do this. And they will all have less compunction about acting on it. And... What advice can you give to a parent when they are trying to have a conversation with their child about how they're feeling or their active thoughts? I tend to be very upfront about it and say, hey, so we did this screening. This is kind of what we're finding. And you'll either be met with, in my experience, one of several responses one's just kind of like a a quiet acknowledgement of oh crap one's like oh something must be wrong they're not that bad and so denial and then the uh, sometimes anger at the kid even like how could you be so selfish how could you be so thoughtless and then and none of that and it's hard it is hard not to react emotionally to a thing you have created and who a person you presumably love an obscene amount not wanting to be alive and it's just I, I can't imagine what it would 
be to have to have that happen you know to to have someone tell me that my daughter was suicidal um i'd like to think i would approach it rationally because i deal with this all the time but i don't often see parents approach this in a rational perspective it's a very emotional topic and they're going to react emotionally because they have an emotional connection to this person it's affecting but just kind of talking them through what the steps are in a very measured way about how we proceed and what's next and what needs to be done to make sure their child is safe, I find is the best way to go about it. Well, Dr. Black, that was very insightful. And I hope parents, you know, can listen to this and like, you know, someone else who encounters children on a daily basis will take this and maybe change the way they interact with them because you know they're they're very smart they're also very resilient but we shouldn't just think their issue is going to go away it definitely needs to be treated it definitely needs to be brought to your attention it shouldn't just be like you know brushed under the rug we definitely don't give them enough credit because you know like you said they pay attention to everything we do and say so it's definitely our job as a society to help them as much as possible because, you know, this world is scary today. Uh, everything is changing and it's very rapid. And most adults can get very overwhelmed. So I can't even imagine what it's like in their little brains. Um, hopefully other clinicians also can use what you said to improve their practice as well. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you letting me ramble for a bit about mental health. I mean, I, it's an extremely important topic and I could probably go on for hours and hours about what needs to be done as a country, what needs to be done as a society, what we need to do better as physicians. Um, but I, I realize we've got a limited forum here. Um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and I think it's very important to be getting, you know, word out there about mental health and that the resources that are out there for people. Yes, 100% agree. And it was a pleasure working with you. (laughs) All right. And to our listeners, thank you so much again for listening in and tuning into this episode. Next episode will come out in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be discussing with two of my friends who just graduated from the Penn College Physician Assistant Program and they're now working as hospitalists so we'll get their perspective on being a new grad and how they're learning to assist patients with mental health issues or suicidal ideations in just a short couple of months of them working so I think it's going to be a great episode and you won't want to miss it all right thank you guys bye